Well, good morning again. Um, it is my privilege to get to be with you guys. Typically, um, I get to share for Pastor Dave on the third Sunday of each month, but um, as luck would have it, we were at home, my family and I, enjoying COVID last, uh, last Sunday. Um, so I thought it wise not to come in and get you all sick. Um, don't worry if you shake my hand afterwards, you're not going to get sick. I've been, you know, I've tested negative, I'm totally good, uh, feeling much better, but um, it's kind of one of those things in life. I, 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 when I think of some of the most annoying things in life, um, one of the top of my list is getting sick. It is, you know, and I'm not talking about like little cold sniffle sick that some people act like is the end of the world, but I'm talking about, you know, being really sick where your life is actually kind of slowed down. I mean, um, I can get through the body aches and the headaches and throwing up or whatever else it might be. But really, the, the most annoying thing to me is that you just can't go about life like normal. You might have plans. You might have things you wanted to do. Um, I, I mean, for us, you know, when we got, this is like our third round with COVID in our household. So we're just, you know, I don't know. It's like changing the weather. We get COVID. But um, I guess maybe working in youth ministry has something to do with that. But um, I, I mean, for us, the, the whole house shuts down. My kids, it was their final week of school. And it was the only week of school that they look forward to all year long because there's like no schooling that actually went on. It was just partying and celebration and games for them. And they missed that. And they're like, man, you know, and I, I, I like my daughter, she'd been training for really hard for a soccer tournament and she has to skip that. And it's, it's everything. I was planning on being with, here, uh, being with you guys last weekend and sharing on Father's Day. Um, but, you know, it's just. Life is kind of slowing down. Life is, and maybe you've had an injury, maybe you've been sick recently. You know, you just, it's, it's annoying to not be able to go about life how you expect and want to go about it. You know, I always think when I get sick or have something happen that, oh, you know, I need this break. You know, it's God's break for me and I'm going to be more productive. I'm going to, you know, I'll work at home and do things from there. But, you know, to be honest, it never works out like that. You know, being sick or, or having an injury is kind of just nature's way of forcing you to be patient in life. And I don't do well with patience, and I don't think most of us do well with patience. I mean, I think we live in a day and age, a time where, I mean, we're not used to waiting around. Everything is there for us now. I mean, we're more productive. We're more, um, you know, we're, we're more active than any other time. You know, and so to sit at home while you're sick and to wait... I mean, it's like that old quote, there's no greater waste of your sick days than actually being sick. You know, and I feel like, you know, that's kind of it, because I'm not good. I mean, we, we as a people aren't good at being patient and waiting around, right? Think of, like, I know for me, in the middle of the pandemic, how annoying was it when Amazon wouldn't get your package, like, the very same day you ordered it? You actually had to wait a week, you know, to get your slippers or whatever you ordered in the mail. It's like, nothing drives me crazier than... You know, we go to Disneyland, and it's like three-hour lines. No, thank you. We're going to pay for the, fa- the lightning pass or whatever it is. And I get on an airplane, and it's like I can either sit there and do nothing, or I can pay for high-speed internet at 40,000 feet and catch up on work and do everything, right? Because we want everything now. It's, 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 I was sitting around with my kids when we were sick, and we were watching a TV show that we like. And uh, it was one of those Disney, you know, Star Wars shows. And I go, oh, that was awesome. Let's watch the next episode. And they're like... Dad, this is one of those weird shows that only comes out once a week. And I was like, oh, I remember when I was a kid and they actually like made you wait for shows and how torturous that was. And nowadays, it's like, who doesn't release all your shows at one time? Because we don't want to wait. We want it now. We want things right away. And, uh, you know, that's great in some cases, but 
I think you begin to look around and you see that type of living and that mentality can also get us in some trouble. Right? You know, you look at during the pandemic, we thought we needed money right away, so we sent out those stimulus checks. And where are we now with our economy? It's not looking too good. Right? And, and personally, I, I just looked it up, personal debt levels for people are higher than ever. We're spending more on credit cards. Why? Well, because we need things right now. We want to take care of problems and needs and, and, and things we see right now. And, and long gone are the days of waiting around for things or putting them on layaway or holding off. And we want things now. And it spills over into our relationships. And we can all think of things we've said that we wish we could take back because we acted in the heat of the moment. We all think of decisions maybe we've made where we regret not thinking it through, being a little more patient. And it's ultimately what makes, um, as we go through the fruit of the Spirit, this is the series we're in as I get to teach and share with you, it's what makes this fourth fruit of the Spirit so uh, important and special. It's the fruit or the aspect of patience. Over there in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has kind of begun the list with some some things that we all love, and we, I've shared with you, and we've talked about love, and we'll all go, yeah, that sounds great. Joy, awesome. I want some of that. Peace, oh, I couldn't use more of that in my life. Like, and then you get to patience, and if you're like me, you go, uh-oh. <laughs> patience. All of a sudden, something there is, it, it kind of hits us because that's not necessarily the way we do life. It's a very right now type of thing. And that word for patience in his list of fruits over in Galatians chapter 5 is the, the Greek word, and it's a special word, makrothumeia. Macro is the, the idea, it's, it's, it's long or extending, extending something out. And thumeia or thumos, the word means um, emotion or passion, your temper. It's, it, the root of that word means to, to breathe heavy. You're like... <sighs> And so it's the idea of, of, of extending your emotions and your passions, putting, pushing them off and not acting in them right now. Ultimately being in control of your temper, not acting in the heat of the moment. And as Paul said that, I, I thought, you know, one, I was supposed to teach on Father's Day, so you'll see some Father's Day lessons come in through this story that we're going to look at today. But there is one great story to me that, um, that one of the aspects of this story really displays passion in a way like, like nothing else in the Bible. And it's, it's actually the story we're going to look at this morning is, is considered by many the most popular story in all the Bible. And some people say, like Charles Dickens, the great author, wrote, it's the finest short story ever written. And so what the story is, it's actually a parable. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15. It's a parable told by Jesus. And he told it in the context of some really religious guys, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees who had come up to Jesus and they had just looked, they, they'd come upon him and they look at all the people he's hanging out with. They see the crowd he's with and they're like, man, these people are the worst. Right? They, they actually said as they looked at his crowd, they start grumbling against him and they say in the beginning of chapter 15, he receives sinners and he eats with them. Right? No way, this Jesus guy can't really be from God because this isn't God's character, it's not God's nature to hang out with these types of people. He wants us to be good. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. And then we look at this Jesus guy and they're like, he's anything but that with the people he's hanging around, the sinners, the tax collectors. The people who are really down in life. And so Jesus, to respond to that, launches into a series of stories. He tells three different stories or parables. And we're not going to look at all of them, although it's a great, great thing to go back and go through them all. We're going to look at the third one, which is, if some of you guys are familiar, in verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. 
So let me start out by kind of walking you through that story, and then we'll, we'll put it all together at the end. It starts in verse 11, where Jesus says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Right? So as the story begins, Jesus introduces us to two characters, the father and his younger son. We're going to later meet the older son. But the younger son comes to his father, who is obviously wealthy and successful. He's, he's got you know, possessions. We find he has many servants later on. And the younger son comes to his father and goes, look, I want it all right now. Give me my possession right now. I want the money. I want the credit card. I want to go out and I want to spend now. I kind of get the sense right out of the gate, and I think Jesus is painting this kid as a big brat because, you know, it's, it's like I picture him as, as that, that movie I watched from my childhood from Willy Wonka. I picture him like Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka, right? You know, that little bratty girl who's like, I want it now. And it's like that's the kind of image that Jesus paints right away of this kid. He's probably in his college years, you know, somewhere in his early 20s, and he's coming to his dad and he's going, look, I don't want to wait around here. It's boring. It's lame. There's other places and people and things I could be doing, and I want to go out and I want to live my life now, so give me my inheritance. You maybe met someone with this type of personality, right? They never really work hard. They never really want to do things the right way. Everything they have is because someone else gave it to them or, you know, they can only see what they don't have in life. And so that's kind of the idea here as Jesus is, is painting this kid. But beyond being just a little spoiled brat, you see, culturally, this kid is displaying some downright disrespect and crude, mean manners. I mean, in their culture, in their time, if you were in Jesus' audience as you heard this, you would have automatically known in a household with two boys the older son would get two-thirds of the father's inheritance, and the younger son would get one-third. And so um, this son coming to his father and asking for it while his father was still alive was almost unheard of for them. They would only receive their inheritance upon the passing of the father. And so this son, he comes to him, and he's essentially saying, and the, the reason this was such an important thing to them is because in their culture, they valued family more than anything. They lived with their family. They lived with the grandparents. The patriarch of the family was always revered and respected, and it was more valued to be around them than it was to have everything from them. And so as Jesus' audience is hearing this, they're going, oh man, this kid's, this kid's downright disrespectful to want the goods and the riches of his dad but to despise the relationship, that was unheard of. One commentator said that to demand your inheritance while your father was still alive was the same as simply wishing he was dead. That's how rude and disrespectful this was in their culture. And here's the real surprising thing. Not how big of a brat this son was, but that the father looked at his son and said, okay. In a culture where that didn't happen, the father goes, sure, you can have it all now. And so the father divides everything up, he sells land or does whatever he has to do to give his younger son his portion of the inheritance. And immediately the younger son gets everything together and it says he goes off to a distant land. The idea that's being painted here is, look, here's his homeland, his home people. He doesn't want to be with his family. He doesn't want to be with his father. He doesn't want to be in his hometown. He doesn't want to be in his home country. He wants to be as far away as possible. It's the ultimate sign of disrespect as this kid leaves home. And heads out, and Jesus says he wastes his life with prodigal living in verse uh, 13 there. That word for prodigal, it means to 
to waste something and to be without care. It's like everything he did, he didn't care about the future. He didn't care about beyond. It's kind of like, it's like when I used to sit down with my friends when I was, you know, a young kid, and we'd always, you know, go, hey, what are you going to buy with your, if you won the lottery today, what are you going to buy? And you'd always say, oh, Lamborghini, you know, I'd buy my own island, and this, you know, I would, uh, I would have my own yacht. And you never think like, oh, if I own a Lamborghini, well, I've got to pay insurance, so I've got to take care of this, that. And if I have my yacht, well, then I've got to dock it somewhere, and I've got to, and you don't think like that, right? And this is the type of living this kid had. He wasted it. He didn't think of the future. He didn't think of how he was going to pay for all the things he's buying, all the experience he's, have, he's having now. He's just going after everything right now. And eventually we're going to see as we go through this story, as Jesus continues on, that's going to catch up to him real soon. Verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to, to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Right? So things suddenly change overnight for this son. He's living high, he's got everything going on, and then overnight the famine comes, and verse 14 says he finds himself living in want. I love that word, that word for want. Some of your Bibles might translate this more properly. The word actually literally means he fell behind in life. It's like he thought he had everything. He thought he had all the fun now. He thought he had all the good stuff. Everything he wanted, he went after. Everything he hoped for, he got. And he thought he was getting ahead because of that. But what actually was happening is he was falling behind. It's like that old classic song by Frank Sinatra. It's kind of the theme song for his life at that time. I did it my way, right? It's like you could hear that playing in the background. But, you know, frankly, he was an idiot. He got it. (laughs) He was an idiot. He was a fool. It's like... He's spending it all, but he didn't have any thought or hope or care for the future. And this is kind of the idea that Jesus is painting here. And he's saying, look, he thought he was getting ahead, but he's falling behind. And as he's falling behind, he comes down to almost the lowest level. As he has to take this job, he joins himself to a citizen from that country. It means he becomes a servant of someone there. And as a servant, he's sent out to feed pigs in the field. And even as he's feeding the pigs, he's looking at their food going, oh man, I'm hungry. And you kind of, again, have to put yourself into Jesus' audience perspective right here. Step into that Jewish shoes, and you would understand, number one, he's painting this guy as the lowest of low. He's talking to sinners and tax collectors, but lower than the tax collectors and all those guys was someone who would go out and work with pigs. And not just that, but to be jealous of what the pigs were eating. It's like, to work with pigs, pigs were forbidden in their culture. It was forbidden in the law. They were unclean animals. And so what he's painting this guy as the most unclean, lowly, you know, sad picture of a person. I, I tried to think of a job that in our modern culture would compare to it. I couldn't really think of anything. I guess after these last few weeks, maybe being Amber Heard's publicist or something would, <laughs> would be along the lines. But like, it's, it's like that type of, you just look at him and you go, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. And in verse 17, he kind of begins to think himself, wait a minute. 
how many of the servants in my father's household are going hungry? Not only that, but they have food to spare. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. Maybe I've lost sight of, of something important. And he goes into this long speech, this rehearsed speech. I love it because he's like, you know what? I'm going to admit, I'm going to confess to my dad that before heaven, before God, I've messed up, right? I've dishonored my mother and my father. I've broken the commandment. And on earth, I've dishonored you. I've made you look, I've shamed you. And he goes, I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm just going to simply beg to be the lowest of low. I want to be a servant, a slave. I don't care. Anything there is better than where this leads me in the end. And as he does that, the picture you've got here that Jesus is painting is he's completely broken down. He realizes how foolish he's been, how unworthy he now is, how ashamed. And really now his plan is just to come back as lowly as possible. And I love the next twist Jesus takes in verse 20. And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. I love as Jesus takes this turn here where this story now begins to head. Beaten up, torn apart by bad decisions, ready to grovel and beg for his place back from his father, the son returns home. uh, It reminds me of a a painting I've always liked. It was a painting... um, by Rembrandt, it's called The Return of the Prodigal. And uh, I put it up here in the graphic today. If you guys have eagle eyes, you can probably see this. But um, if you can look up close, I love this painting because Rembrandt, Rembrandt painted this multiple times throughout his life. And he often, at certain times, painted himself into the painting. And Maybe they can put it on the screen for you guys outside or um, online at home. Um, but Rembrandt would often paint himself into the painting because he connected with this so often. Um, and this was his most famous version of it. But in The Return of the Prodigal Son, I love how he paints the sun here. If you look closely, you see the sun is in tattered clothing. And everyone around him, all the servants around him are in nicer, you know, more royal, regal clothing. Um, The son's shoes have been torn off. His feet are laid bare. His head has been shaved. His beard has been shaved off. It's like Rembrandt really got the the idea that, that Jesus was painting in this story. This son was torn down and brought low. He was shamed in their culture and society. His beard gone, his head uncovered like that. It was unheard of in their culture and their society. And this is kind of the idea that Jesus is bringing home here. That look, he's as low as it goes. And in this scene that Jesus says, look, his impatient, this selfish son, he returns home broken. You can only imagine what this type of son is thinking as he's walking through the fields back to his dad's house. right? And he's thinking, look, I'm, I'm, I'm dressed like this. I've been so embarrassed and, and, and I've left my family and now I'm going to walk back through my home country, walk back through the fields, walk back to my, my dad through the groups of the servants and I'm going to beg for my place. I'm going to beg to be just treated like the lowest of servants here. And I love the scene because as verse 20 points out, his father sees him and he doesn't see him with disappointment. He doesn't look at him and go, oh boy, here we go again. 
right? Return him back home. I've seen this before. Here we go. He doesn't see him with frustration. Like, man, I gave him like a million bucks, and this is how he returns looking like he's homeless. Like, he doesn't see him with anger or bitterness or resentment. I love verse 20 tells us, the father saw him with compassion. He didn't see him in light of the mistakes he made. He didn't see him in light of the disrespect he had given. The father saw him in light of his relationship with him. And it's the father who had compassion, who now runs after his son, grabs his son. And if you've heard this story before, you probably know this. If you haven't, then this is a good thing to note. Running in their culture, especially for older guys, was not a common thing. And it was considered kind of lowly and beneath them. Like when, I, when I'm driving down the street and I see an old guy running, I'm jealous. Like I, I feel really bad about myself. I, I, I question my life choices. Um, but not in their culture. When they saw an old guy running, they're like, oh my goodness, that is embarrassing. That is only what children do. That is the lowest of low. And this dad didn't care. He's just, he's just running through his fields. And before his son, as he gets to his son, before his son can even get out that full rehearsed apology he had, he had had, you know, the son goes, before heaven and on earth, I've sinned before you. Before he can even beg to be a servant in his father's household, his father's just grabbing him and slobbering all over him, kissing him. And he's, he's looks, the first thing he does, his father, is he looks to his servants and he says, go get a new robe, go get him some new sandals for his feet. And he says, go get the rings and put them on his hand. Signifying this, that he's not a servant. He's in the family. He's a son. He's got his position back. Before he can even get that apology out, before he can even come to his full, you know, rehearsed speech that he has going, the father's already received him and forgiven him and put him back in his place. His, this dad didn't care about spoiling him again. For him, his eyes were on the fact that his son had returned. He was as good as dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. (laughs) And so he goes, kill the calf. Kill the fatted calf. Let's fire up the barbecue. We're making hamburgers and steaks for everyone. We're going to party and have a great time. That's the mood this dad is in. He's just like, look, I don't care what a waste this has been in the past. My son is here, and he's realized something important. He wants to be with me. And so they start and they get that ready. And as you're hearing this, again, jumping into Jesus' audience, there's definitely a group there that would have heard this and been like, that's why we follow you, Jesus. Because we feel like whenever we come to you, you accept us, you receive us. You display that type of God. But remember, there was another group there. And that other group was a type of group that stood from the outside and said, look, we do everything right. God doesn't really receive those types of people. Why is Jesus hanging around these types of people? Why is Jesus doing this lowly thing if he really is from God? And so now, Jesus takes the story to another level where he brings in these Pharisees and scribes as he describes the older son. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, 
Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Right, what a tragic twist to the story, right? As Jesus now brings in these Pharisees, and, and, and he brings in this third character, the older son. Or the older brother. And the older brother, as he hears of his younger brother's return, and moreover, how his dad reacts to him, verse 28 says he became angry and he refuses to go into the feast. He hears all the joy and all the celebrating, all the shouting, all the people having a great time. But in his head, he thinks, man, my brother doesn't deserve this. I'm not going to be a part of that and go in and celebrate someone who's been out there living their life with harlots and spending their money in the worst way. I can't condone the way this guy's been living his life. And he's angry. He's bitter. So his dad rushes out. His dad's not angry when he rushes out, but his dad rushes out because he goes, I have, I have my other son is out here. And he goes, uh, as his dad comes to him, he begins to plead with him. He says, son, come in. Your younger brother is home. And the older brother turns and now responds to his dad. And honestly, he responds to him in a way that for a long time I thought was so outrageous. But then I began to kind of think of my own life. I began to think of the culture they live in and we live in. They lived in much like us, a type of culture that said, hey, look, this is a fair world. You work hard, you get ahead. The early bird gets the worm, right? We have all those types of maxims and ideas, right? Where, where things, good things come to those who, who wait and, and all these types of ideas of, of you're going you're gonna to push through things and, and you're going to be rewarded for that. And that was kind of their mentality too. And so his response, to be honest, while kind of outrageous, kind of hits home with me sometimes. He goes, I've worked away for you. I haven't transgressed any of your commandments. I was the good one. I always did the right things. I was the one up early, working hard while he was off partying. I was the one who did everything right. And you never did this for me. He never rolled out the red carpet for me. He never killed the fatted calf for me. How come I'm not the one you're celebrating? Right? Again, when I hear that, I think, I don't know, I kind of get it. I mean, haven't you felt this way before, right? Maybe you've worked hard at something at work and you've, you've put in the time and the extra hours, yet someone else is the one who gets credit for it. Someone else is the one who your boss kind of likes and favors more than you. Maybe in your family, your parents have always had their favorite kid and, and you always felt like, man, I've got to work harder to get attention from my dad or my mom. I've got to be the one that's like, you know, always overlooked by someone else. Maybe you're the one who's always gone to church. Maybe you've always been here and you're so faithful and you've done things right. Maybe you pray and you read your Bible and you do all the things that you should be doing. Yet you look around at life sometimes and you're like, why are those people so far ahead? Why do I have a harder family than them? Why is my past more difficult than them? Why do they have more money than me? Or why is they have the, it seems like they have more breaks than me? I, I've been doing this all right. Shouldn't I be getting the good stuff too? And this, when I hear this, I mean, I kind of see that, look, I'm a lot often like this older brother. It's easy to look at life and to see the ways others get things that they might not deserve. And this is what makes what the Father says at the very end here in verse 31 and 32 so special. This is so, so crucial, you can't miss this. And the Father, he looks at him in verse 31 and he says, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. His father looks at his son and he goes, look, son, you've missed it. You've missed it. You've missed the big picture. Your brother was dead. He's alive. I've been here and you're missing me. And this is the sad reality as we kind of come to the end of this story that Jesus is painting here. You see, the older son is ultimately where the younger son was when the story began. He thought he was further ahead. He thought he had done everything right. But in the end, he didn't realize the value of a relationship with the father. He wanted the recognition now. He wanted the appreciation now. He wanted his father's rewards without the father. And now at the end, it's what blows me away, is that Jesus ultimately directs this at the Pharisees, and he says to them, look, you guys are the ones who, who do everything right. You guys are the ones who, who, who do all the things that God has commanded you to do in the law and in the scriptures, but you've, you've missed one of the most important things. You've missed and begun to despise the character and nature of God. And God is gracious. And God is loving. Just like this father is in this story. And you can't control that. You can't manipulate that. You can't earn that. And you can't deserve that. You've missed the big picture. The real reward in this story was the father. And ultimately, this older brother had the same heart as the younger brother in the beginning. They both wanted the father to do as they wanted in life, not as the father wanted. They're both not interested in enjoying the father and serving him in love. And ultimately, it led them to rebelling, to despising the father, to acting rash, trying to manipulate him, responding in a way that ultimately they were going to regret in life. And this is the great main point of this story that his audience was meant to see. As Jesus is telling this, he's saying, look, if you're to understand one thing about God, understand this. God is gracious. God is loving. And God has open arms to all who would come to him and recognize that he's the prize. He's the reward. Not his things. And the heart of God is to ultimately receive those who are lost. And the older brother who thought he was perfect and the younger son who recognized he wasn't, well, they're the same in the end. And his grace and his goodness are not ours to command, to earn for, to work, or to deserve. And that older brother had missed it, and the younger son, well, he had to find it. They had ultimately missed the blessing of being with the father. And the ultimate thing this father would say is, look, it's not for you, the older son, it's not for you to be recognized for everything. It's not for you to have a feast in your honor. It's not to get more rings on your finger and be looked at as more prestigious and to be looked at as I am. He goes, the ultimate thing is me. And you've lost it. You've lost me. And because of that, these guys were foolish. They made choices that ultimately, in the end, were going to not matter. And this is the important thing to understand. You can have everything. You can have all the freedom, all the possessions, all the things, all your desires, everything your heart wants. 
all the recognition, appreciation, valuation in life, but that's never in the end going to get you ahead. It's ultimately what leaves you feeling empty. As Pastor Dave taught us through an amazing passage in, in Matthew chapter 16 a few weeks ago, Jesus said this in verse 26 of chapter 16. He said, For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And this is the point of that parable. Look, you can have everything from one side or the other, but it doesn't profit you if you don't have the Father. If you don't have what's going to make you whole in the core of who you are. Because in the end, whether we're younger, younger sons or older brothers, we're all the same. And in the end, the Father is there to receive us with grace. And before we can even grovel and beg, he's there to restore us, forgive us, elevate us beyond what we ever deserve or could earn. There's grace and love and open arms to all who aren't trying to earn or do this in their own righteousness. And for me, it's what makes this one of the greatest stories ever told. But, like as I mentioned, there is also a lesson in this story about patience. As you kind of look at this and put it all together. Uh, You see, patience, as we talked about from Galatians chapter 5, patience means long temper or passion. The ability to hold off and to wait on something, knowing... And hopefully that there's, there's something bigger, right? It means the ability to set aside your frustration, your anger, your emotion, your passionate desire, and to endure something or to tolerate something difficult because there's something bigger you're focused on. Right? It means we have the ability for the moment and the strength for the moment to put, set aside our, our emotions or our feelings, to, avo- to, to not avoid difficult things because our eyes are on something bigger in the end. And if we can't learn to do this, if we can't learn to practice patience, then we're often going to find ourselves like one of these two sons, seeking after all the wrong things, and ultimately frustrated and disappointed in God. And this, as we now turn to the father in the story, is where we really see patience. See, the father is one of the most reassuring, comforting, Loving figures ever to be written about or, or told in a story, right? He's one of the most famous characters. But, but when you look at the father, ultimately what expressed most of that or almost all of that was his patience. See, patience from the, uh, the father was ultimately what expressed his love. You see, that younger son came to him and he wanted everything now. He didn't care about who the father was. He didn't care about how disrespectful he was being. He didn't care about how hard the father worked or how much the father loved him. He just wanted the things from the father. And this dad could have, he had every right to punish his son. He had every right to teach him a stern lesson. He had every right to lay out how he should act. He had every right to cast him out of the family. But what do we see here? His father looks at his son And knows there's a bigger picture. He knew that his son was never going to get it. If he was sitting there trying to manipulate him. Make him do everything he wanted him to do. Make him be who he wanted him to be. And so he allowed his son space. He gave him something he didn't deserve. He knew his son needed to learn. And he allowed him the room to go and make mistakes. This is a hard one when it comes to patience and me. As I look at my life, the things I have to wait through, right? If you're like me, you immediately ask, well, what if I'm waiting for something and I don't get what I expected? 
Or what if patience leads me to miss an opportunity and to not be ahead like others? Or what if, if this father in his patience, what if his son never came back? And listen, this is one of the the lessons of patience you have to know and you have to understand. Having patience does not dictate the outcome of things. It's not some barter or agreement you make with God that says, well, I'm going to wait and then one day you're going to do what I want. No. God's not ours to command. But God's good. And he knows exactly what needs to happen and just what we need. Patience is ultimately, in in the end, the act of us stepping out of the way and not trying to be God. Not forcing things to happen our way. Not forcing people to act our way the way we think they should act. And in the end, it was ultimately the patience of the father that ultimately ended up changing his son. It's how his love was expressed. I love what Henri Nouwen says. He's a great author and writer, if you ever pick up some of his stuff. But he writes this book called The Return of the Prodigal. And in it, he said, it was love itself that prevented the father from keeping his son home at all costs. It wasn't the father's harshness that changed the son. It wasn't his anger. It wasn't throwing the rules at his son that changed him. It was his patience. And for us, it's a lesson. Listen, we can't always control things. But by holding on in fear, reacting in haste, trying to make everything happen our way, the way we want and expect in life, look, that's never going to get us ahead in life. We see that with the sons. And this is kind of the key, ultimately, here to what I call prodigal patience, right? As, as in verse 30 and 31, when he talks to the son, the father says to the older son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Your, your brother was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. He goes, look, ultimately, he says, Son, you're missing the big picture, You're focused on all the wrong things. You're missing ultimately in the end the big picture. Therefore, you don't have patience for your brother. You don't have patience for me. And we see in that younger son that as he goes out on his journey, he doesn't, he's missed the big picture at all. He doesn't see how good and valuable the father is. He doesn't see how uh, secure and how much comfort the father provides until he goes out and he makes all these stupid, foolish, rash decisions. And in his haste, he sees the patience of the father And how loving his dad was. Both sons had lost sight of the bigger picture. Of what truly matters. And in keeping the eyes on God's, keeping our eyes on God's bigger picture for our life. That's how we begin to develop patience. In everything that we do. Right? Keeping our eyes on our relationship with the father. More than on all the things we get from him. Is ultimately how we find strength to deal with. And to react properly in life. It's where we find the strength for patience. And realizing for all of us that the greatest value or thing in our life is never going to come from the things we attain. It's not going to come from having everything now. It's not going to come from the stuff or the things or the houses or the cars or doing it my way. But ultimately it's in having a a real relationship with a heavenly father, a God who created the heavens and the earth. That loves us, provides for us, says to us, all that I have is yours. You're covered. Not just now, but for all eternity. You've got a home. 
You've got a future. You are secured. And he says, look, if we keep our eyes on that, then we're not going to get caught up in all these little prodigal problems. To ultimately know that my life, if it's focused on God's purposes, his kingdom, who he is, my life is in his hands. I don't need to freak out. I don't need to worry. I don't need to to make everything happen. I, I know this is a hard lesson, you know, and God's always teaching me it, but I had to learn it really you know, in a, in a real way, over the last year of my life. Way back in 2021, um, I say way back like it was so long ago, but in 2021, um, my family, I, we got COVID, you know, like I said, it's just like another thing every month. Uh, but I got COVID for the first time, and for, for my kids, it was like 15 minutes. They like, you know, sneezed once, and it was over and done. But for me, I was like the total opposite. I was slammed. I was so sick. I was, you know, many of, I've talked to a lot of you guys and you've been praying for me and so I'm so thankful for that, but I spent the, almost an entire year just not myself. It was the hardest year of my life and um, I spent the first month being really sick from COVID and, and having, you know, big lung problems and so I went to the doctor and he goes, look, this first month you got to recover from COVID and then you need another month um, of, of doing nothing difficult, nothing hard to let your lungs recover from that and you should be good after that. So I wait, I, you know, I get through the first month and then the second month and the doctor goes, okay, go ahead and do some stuff. And so I went, you know, I started going back and trying to teach in the youth ministry and went to an event um, and then went and exercised for my first time. And like the day after I do all of that, literally got worse than ever. I mean, my lungs fell apart. My heart was just crazy. My chest pain I had to go to the ER multiple times. Like it was just wild. And I go to the doctor and the doctor has no, he's like, well, it's called long COVID. We don't know anything. We can't give you anything. Just, just tough it out, you know? And I'm like, what? You know? And so I'm trying everything I do as the, as the days go by, I try one thing. I try to go to my kid's soccer tournament or something. And it's like, it made me worse for the next two weeks. I try to go in and I try to teach with a youth group and Lord only knows what I was teaching in there because my brain was somewhere else. But, um, and, and then like my lungs are falling apart, my chest hurts. It's like, and everything I tried as the months go by, it's like I just got worse and worse and I couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't one of those things like a, a tough cold where you can just you know, sniffle through it and just go on with life. It was like I kept getting worse and, and my brain was falling apart and I couldn't think right. And, um, and eventually, I love Pastor Jerry because he's just this way sometimes. He calls me aside one day while I'm at work and he goes, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I'm here, you know, the youth group is going to fall apart, or this, that, oh, I've got all these ministries and things I've got to take care of. And he goes, what do you, you think God doesn't have that in, in, in control? He goes, just go home and rest. And don't come back until you're better. And I was like, what? Like, that could take months. He goes, I don't care. I know we all don't have jobs that are like that, you know. So it was, it was nice that, that he was that gracious with me as, as one of my bosses here. And, and, and he goes, look, you got to get it. you got to understand things. This isn't about you right now. There's a bigger picture here. And if you can't learn to be patient, to wait, well, then that bigger picture is going to be more messed up and messed up each time, you, each time you do this to yourself. And it was hard. I had to sit at home and do nothing. I had to go through. And, and I know some people have it way worse than me, so I'm not trying to, to make myself out to be this person that suffered so dear. It was just hard to wait. It was just difficult because I didn't know if I was going to get better or not. And, and slowly but surely, the Lord, you know, he blessed me and I got better. And I felt better and I've been able to get back on my feet. But there came a point where I just had to go, you know what, God? There's a bigger picture. I would love if things were different right now. 
I would love, and I know there's so many of us in this situation, I'd love if my family turned out better. I'd love if my child was still at home or he acted the way I wanted him to do or this, that, or the other. I would love if my job was... I would love if I could change everything in my life and make it better. But right now, Lord, teach me to keep my eyes on the bigger picture. Remind me that I've I've got an eternal home. I've got a God that loves me and is so gracious for me. I have everything I could ever want or need right now from you, Lord. And when you begin to put your eyes on him, when you begin to take your eyes off your, what I call, prodigal problems, you begin to make better decisions. You begin to be a little less frustrated. You begin to take what you have in life and to make the best of it. To not live in want, to not live in bitterness towards God. And he takes care of things in his timing. He always has and he always will. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is, is patient. He's not slack concerning his promises. He knows what he's promised us. He knows what good is coming. But he's patient that all would come to repentance. He's waiting because he's got a bigger picture here. And that means we're going to go through difficulties. It means we're going to face things that we wouldn't write into. It means we're going to face trials and stuff. And to be hasty... To look at God and to be bitter towards him comes from the fact that we look at everything and think we should have it right now. Everything should be good now. Everything should be right now. Everything should be right now as I want it and I write it into my story. And God looks at you and he goes, I've got something better. Just like this father looked at his son and he goes, I'm patient with you. I'm willing to wait. And God is so patient with us. And he is so good to us. He's so loving and compassionate He comes to us with those open arms and he says, look, understand this, you're going to mess it up and you're going to mess it up and time and time again, I'm here for you. I'm willing to receive you back. So you can be patient too. You can chill out and understand, I've got it. Don't relax and be patient so that he does exactly what you say. Don't try to manipulate him and force him to do what you want. But keep your eyes on the real prize. The Father. He loves you. He's with you. And as you do that, you'll find waiting, well, it's not quite as bad as we think. You grow closer to the Lord. You overcome things that maybe you thought you'd never overcome. He finds way to do things in life that we would have never thought on our own had we made those hasty decisions, had we lashed out and gotten bitter at God because we didn't have what we wanted right now. Because he's good. He's loving. He knows exactly what we need when we need it so we can wait. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that, God, you're so very patient with us. That There's so many things in our lives, Lord, that we're impatient with, and one of them is you. How we always want things from you now. We want you to do things right now, but, Lord, you're so good to us, and you know ultimately what we need. So help us to know that you've got something better in plan than we could ever forced to happen. Help us to be people who have our eyes on you and not on what we don't have. Because Jesus, we see in you and your love, your compassion, how you died for us on the cross, how you poured out your life for us. We see a God who loves us more than we could ever, ever imagine. How could we not trust you with our lives? Thank you for all that you do. Help us set our eyes on you as we go about our week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.